they should put up a banner that says this was the best we could do. <laughs> we tried. We tried. I mean, look, it's 2020. We're all doing the best we can do. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is August 25th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. I thought we were going to introduce Jeff first. You should introduce Jeff. Well, it's too late. It's too late. <laughs> From Los Look, Angeles. I'm trying to look out for you here, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Contributor Jeff <laughs> then you're talking over your introduction. What good is that? Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm well. You can... <laughs> You can do my introduduction. Well, I guess I, it's no point now. Hi, I'm Jeff Foster. I I'm did. In, you were talking over Angeles. it. Well, in case anyone didn't hear and didn't, doesn't know who I am. Why has this turned into such a debacle every week? <laughs> I think it's. A I knew it would. And that's why I said you what I said. Up. I mean, you did it. So, <laughs> um, Jeff, anything new to report from the world of California? We got, we got two NBA teams alive and well. One's not so well but alive um you know things are looking up they're they're making the playoffs interesting anyway well the, the playoffs actually have been very interesting um on sunday night i was you know i had watched some basketball and i'm like casually catching up on twitter and just like my entire feed after a certain point was just luca luca oh my god luca luca what a monster just like over and over and over again um, which I guess means I follow a lot of uh, NBA people on Twitter. You're too many. You're getting too much overlap on your Luca outburst. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a pretty great shot, though. I mean, you know, it probably warranted it. I mean, buzzer beating overtime three. Sure. Step back. Also. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was uh, incredible. I feel like nothing cements star. Like, look, everyone knows this guy's great, but I feel like something about a buzzer beater. It reminds me of Dame's buzzer beater. Was that last year? It feels like 10 years ago. I think it was uh, last year, but you were so where, right about that. Where it was the same thing. It was like all of a sudden it's like, okay, Dame, you're now a huge superstar, even though we all might have thought that already. But but something about that is, is cements a, a, a reputation. Yeah. Um, I wanted to I wanted to mention another really like, really nice sports moment from the weekend. Um, golfer Sophia Popov won the British Women's Open at the Royal Troon in Scotland. I like am compelled to say Royal Troon in like a certain <laughs> affect because um, I just really like that. Uh, but Popov was ranked number three hundred and four going into the tournament. A month ago, she was caddying for a friend. She was given a spot in an LPGA event earlier this month because that tournament was short of players because of the pandemic. And her ninth place finish there earned her a spot in the British Open, which she then went on to win. It was a really cool story. Um, I like the the moment that she won. She was crying. I was tearing up. It was very, it was very moving. Just a cool. That would story. be like that would be like if uh, remember when the Zamboni driver played goalie <laughs> uh, at one point. That would be like if he suddenly was just their starter and they won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, and he he was the MVP of the right. Stanley Cup final. <laughs> On today's show, we'll jump back into the NBA playoffs, taking a closer look at the Raptors and the Celtics, who will face each other after sweeping their first round opponents. And we'll dig into the post-process future of one of those opponents, the Philadelphia 76ers. 
We'll also dive into Major League Baseball, which somehow is halfway finished with the regular season, at least for some of its teams. We'll give out our midseason MVP, Rookie of the Year, and Cy Young Awards, and look at which teams need to make moves before the trade deadline passes. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The NBA first round has ended for three teams, with the Miami Heat sweeping the Indiana Pacers, the Toronto Raptors taking down the Brooklyn Nets, and the Boston Celtics dispatching the Philadelphia 76ers. Philly's loss has everyone talking about where the team goes from here now that the process of deliberately tanking in order to grab as many draft picks, young players, and trade-friendly contracts as possible hasn't yielded much in the way of postseason success. Mike Greenberg on ESPN's Get Up gave Philly's strategy a grim eulogy. Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons are what remain of the process. Together, they've won 10 playoff games and missed 383 games. Which is a shame, really, because no one could argue they were bad picks. They're both all-star caliber players. But between Embiid's health and Simmons' offensive limitations, it seems they may have gone about as far as they're ever going to. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's over. And if so, the moral of the story is this. The process was designed to revolutionize the sport. Instead, it became a cautionary tale that hopefully will keep any team from ever trying it again. All right, Neil, is the process really over? I mean, it's over for the Sixers in the sense that pretty much all of the the stuff that they stockpiled during the process, whether it be all of the picks, all of the cap space, everything, that's like basically all gone now. They might have like a stray second round pick uh, left here or there, but they pretty much did what, uh, you know, they, they, they had all that stuff and they used it. And this is what they have to show for it. And it feels kind of underwhelming. Uh, and I think uh, Greeny is is right about that, that, you know, after degrading the team to an extent that I think no other non-expansion team has ever done over the years, we've seen some some bad expansion teams, but never an established team that bottomed out that badly. Uh, it feels like they should they should have more success for it. And I think that it calls into question whether teams are going to try this again in the future. And we can debate whether that you should use a sample of one team that didn't fully allow Sam Hinkie to see it through to the end. We should also note, you know, they replaced him after only, I think he wasn't even there three years um, before uh, Jerry Colangelo and sort of took over, installed his son as GM. Then he had <laughs> Burner Gate. Then he had all of the craziness that has kind of followed from there. But, um, you know, I, I'm not sure, especially after they tweaked the lottery odds and made it more difficult for a team or less likely for a team that finishes with the worst record to get the number one overall pick. Uh, and then you see what they've done with some of the number one overall picks or, or at least the high pick. I mean, they picked Markel Fultz. He hasn't really panned out. They didn't even stick with him very long. Uh, Jalil Okafor is another top pick from the um, from the process era. He's been, you know, an underwhelming player. They got Simmons. They got Embiid, uh, and we're kind of seeing, you know, the the fruits of that come uh, to bear for the Sixers. And you know, it it's hasn't necessarily been all that exciting either, aside from coming within a few bounces of going to the conference finals last playoffs. So I think that other teams might look at this and say, 
you know, is it really worth the risk of blowing up our team for multiple seasons if this is really the best you can do down the line? Yeah, I I, I can't get over that this I feel like we're ju- we're judging the process by this very specific outcome. And that's I just don't think that's how it works. I mean, so many things need to go right for a team to win a championship. If your only goal for whatever strategy you have for your basketball team is to win a championship, then you're going to fail most of the time. It's just there's too many other things that go into it. There's too much luck involved. There's too many injuries that happen and that you can't plan for. I mean, this postseason, this whole season looks much different if Embiid and Simmons are both healthy the whole way, right? But I mean, isn't that also part of the point? Like, first of all, you could build a team that gets crushed in the first round of the playoffs by a vastly superior opponent without having to throw away three or four seasons, right? I mean, you know, plenty of teams do that all the time. Sure, but would they have been markedly better during those three or four seasons? Would they have been contenders there? Or, I mean, I what's the difference between you know, an eight seed and like a team or a team that just like misses the playoffs or the worst team in the league. What's the difference? No, I mean, ostensibly there is no difference. It depends how you judge your teams. I think the frustrating thing for Philly fans is that it was close enough to a, a truly great team that they could, they could almost see this version of the process working. Like it, it was pretty close. Um, Embiid and Simmons are great players, legitimate stars. And they're also these kind of unique unicorn type players. And it, it was almost there. I think the the lesson is they had to hit, you know, at least three or four of those big picks and they hit two or four, um, you know, missing on faults and and Okafor. Um, But even that, I mean, you know, Brett Brown, he's gone. And I, I think there was no person in the basketball universe who thought he didn't deserve to be fired. Um, and he was basically, he could have just fired himself, you know, once the whistle <laughs> blew at the end of that game, because it was inevitable. Um, just leave the bubble and never come back. Yeah, <laughs> Go yeah. straight to the just parking like, lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so uh, you can blame coaching. I mean, we've seen teams, you know, they, they certainly weren't doing more with less. I mean, they, they were underperforming. They were lost. They lost a key player and they played really bad in the wake of that, which is not really a testament to good coaching. And, and they had, I mean, when they had Jimmy Butler last year, they did seem like they were much more on the cusp of champ- true championship quality. And without him, they have seemed totally adrift this year. And Butler basically said he didn't he, he didn't stick around. He could have resigned, but uh, didn't want to because of the dynamic with the franchise. He didn't know. He said he didn't know who was in charge. That probably speaks to both Brand and Brown and even the previous regime uh, and, you know, the chaos there. And uh, it probably says something about Embiid and Simmons and the whole dynamic of the team also. It's the thing we don't, you know, our our projection system was always very high on the Sixers because of the talent, because that's what it's based on. And it doesn't have like a real way to understand fit. And also, I think it assumes, well, I assume that like teams with a lot of talent will figure the fit out because that's what you're supposed to do. And they just never, they just never did. They never could make that work. Horford's role wasn't well defined all season. And so it's not really a surprise that things, you know, fully fell apart in the bubble. All right. So if you guys, if you had to 
choose one, Embiid or Simmons, who do you keep and build the, rebuild <laughs> the team around? That's the million dollar question, yeah. isn't it? I, come on, it's easy. No, it's not. I mean, it's not easy it, at all. It, it, it's easy to say Simmons, I think, because it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of teams that are built around a player like Embiid that are going to, you know, win championships or at least compete for championships. But it, it, it it's definitely a sort of out of the box approach. But then again, Simmons, you know, with his uh, offensive uh, shooting limitations, is not a traditional player either. So, so I, I think. <laughs> Both, considering Harris and, and Harford are on these massive deals, you have to almost stick with them. I mean, I, I don't see them going anywhere unless they're a throw in on some huge blockbuster trade. Um, but but that doesn't seem likely. So I don't know. I, I me, If it was me personally, I probably would still try to move in beat. I think you could get a lot for him. I think you could probably get more for Simmons. But it, I could see a championship team coming from the Ben Simmons uh, led version of the Sixers rather than the Embiid version. Well, let's talk more about the Sixers opponent there. Um, should we be, you know, Boston played Philly and and has a history of playing Embiid differently than most other teams and more effectively than most other teams. So this was this more about Boston's defense than it was necessarily, you know, Philly just not able to score or... I mean, I think I think we think Boston is just a pretty talented team, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a little of both, right? Uh, and and I think probably the the performance of the Celtics has been lost amid all of the criticism of the Sixers. So it's sort of like the Celtics played really well, and yes, the Sixers underperformed, and that's what it takes to get a sweep. And that's probably true in most cases. You know, when a team gets swept out of the playoffs, um, especially if they're a team that had aspirations to do more whereas like we'll probably talk about the the nets in a second they were kind of just happy to be there i mean <laughs> given who who they were playing with and all of that you know it's not i don't think they could walk away from that with their you know head hanging whereas with the sixers it's like clearly a disappointment um but boston's defense was great their offense was great i mean they're like a very heavy switching team which i think gave a lot of trouble to Embiid, especially when you don't have that simmons to to kind of play off of and you don't have that second player and it certainly was going to be like josh richardson or someone you know shake milton or, or someone like that so i think that that really kind of uh compounded the problems that the sixers had uh and then if you look at how you know, the Sixers did not defend well in that series also. Uh, and, and they really allowed uh, Tatum in particular to just run wild. And Tatum has exploded. I mean, we already knew that he was a great player, but I think now he's like a top five player in the league or something, uh, according to Raptor uh, wins above replacement or, or near that. And that's like a level that I think we didn't necessarily um, see him as going into the season, but he has kind of grown by leaps and bounds, and especially in the playoffs. I mean, he looks really, really, really good. Yeah, he is. Um, he is eighth right now in Raptor War. Anthony Davis slipped ahead of him last night. He is actually one one spot ahead of Luka Doncic. So all he needs he now is his like buzzer beating overtime three step back three to uh solidify his stardom but so our model actually neil i want to talk about that really quickly he they, it gives the celtics now the best odds to win the final to win it all is that 
right? Are we? Do we feel good about that? Does that, that seem weird to anybody else? Yeah. No, I mean, I you know, we should say that they have a twenty one percent chance. The Lakers have an eighteen percent chance. The Clippers have an eighteen percent chance. And in the case of the Lakers and Clippers, those are two teams that haven't quite punched their ticket. Especially the Clippers. I mean, they're locked in this. 2-2 battle. I mean, we still think that they'll win, but you know, never discount the value of actually being in the next round of the playoffs versus potentially still having the chance to lose. I think if the Lakers close things out against Portland, they would become favorites again. Uh, and we'll see what happens with the Clippers. I mean, a little I'm a little more confused about why the Bucks are so low because I mean, they're up <laughs> yeah, they're up 3-1 in that series. But I think some of it, some of that for the Bucks has to do with, first of all, I don't think they played especially well uh, in that series. And we have this uh, Raptor variant that we actually use for the projections called Predictive Raptor. And if you look at Milwaukee, I mean, their Predictive Raptor has been negative. They've played at a below average level. And this is relative to all of the NBA in that series so far. Uh, and Orlando has played above its head, obviously. But, um, you know, they're up 3-1. But I think that Raptor is kind of looking at that and, and wondering if they're the shakiest of the uh, teams that have, you know, that are likely to move on. Well, let's move on to uh, the defending champion Toronto Raptors for a second, oh, them. who are below all the rest of the teams, except for the Bucks. They're, they're, they're at 10% to win the finals. We don't need to spend much time, I think, analyzing how they took apart the Nets because, you know, as discussed, it was the Nets. It was like not and not even like the real Nets. It was sort of the the best they could do Nets. Um, and they did well and, you know, good for them. But Jeff, for <laughs> they should put up a banner that says this was the best we could do. <laughs> 2020 NBA first round participant. I mean, right. It's 2020. We're all doing the best we can do. Okay. I identify strongly with the Nets right now. Just do the best you can, guys. Yeah, I was rooting. I mean, I was rooting for them to to kind of pull through in some of those games. It didn't happen, but they were like kind of close. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> well, but so the Raptors, I mean, I don't know how much we can take out of that series, but Jeff, how are they looking? What strengths of theirs have stood out to you? Scoring 100 points with their bench in that <laughs> last game is ridiculous. I mean, I don't care who they're playing. I, I, I don't, is that even been done before? I mean, that's remarkable. 150 points total and then 100 points with the bench. I mean, granted, part of that was a product of Lowry getting injured and Lowry's ankle and his status, which seems still pretty up in the air, is, is a huge factor here. And, and Van Fleet uh, got, they had foul trouble also. So there was a reason they were using the bench a lot and the whole last quarter was essentially garbage time. So <laughs> all, all that aside, they are an incredibly deep team and possibly the deepest team um, left remaining. Serge Ibaka and Norm Powell, I mean, they almost combined for 60 points and I mean, their stat lines in limited minutes were ridiculous and they have a lot of good players and, and they they can roll. Their second unit is very solid. I mean, they, you know, regardless of who they're playing, they looked legitimately good. I mean, I think some of these guys would be starters on other teams. So we'll see what happens with Lowry. I, again, I don't want to read too much into it because it was a very shorthanded Nets team missing, obviously, the, all their star power, this side of Karis LeVert, former Michigan guy. Glad to see he had a sort of <laughs> nice. mini breakout. Let's not get <laughs> too far down the Michigan road. But um, we'll see. I mean, a great coach, deep team. Obviously, um, 
you know, shouldn't be taken lightly. I think it's interesting. I was noticing that the Raptors have by far and away the best net rating of anyone in the playoffs again against the Nets, whatever, but they, uh, their net rating is 20.4 points and that's 8.1 points better than the next closest team, which is the Celtics. (laughs) So I think these are, I mean, if you sort of do a, you know, a, a, Nets adjustment in your mind of on the Raptors. These are two pretty, they seem evenly matched teams in different ways though. Um, And that should make it kind of interesting, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, to that point about doing the Nets adjustment, Raptor actually does Raptor, the metric, not the team uh, (laughs) adjusts for quality of competition for every player that played against your players. So if you kind of sum up a team's Raptor in the playoffs, you actually kind of get an opponent adjusted, uh, you know, rating, if you will. Uh, And so the Raptors have been the best team of the playoffs so far, uh, followed by Utah and Boston, you know, a decent amount behind uh, about three to four points per 100 possessions behind Toronto. So Toronto is, uh, you're, you're right that they've been the best team, even if we take away, you know, the nets, uh, the quality of the nets that they faced. Um, and I worry about Lowry's status. I mean, I think everyone with Toronto is worried about it. We don't know necessarily what kind of effect that you know, is he going to miss time? Is he going to be less effective if he does play? Uh, he was their best player during the regular season. And, uh, you know, as, as deep as they are, it's going to be difficult for them against Boston in particular. That's the other kind of unfair thing uh, about the fact that, yes, because they got the second seed, they now have to face Boston in the next round of the playoffs coming off this red hot you know, series of their own. So I think in a weird way, the team that comes out of that uh, has faced like a lot stiffer competition than, you know, assuming the Bucks win than whoever they end up. Uh, well, they would face uh, Miami uh, yeah. in, in the next round. So, you know, I think that either the Celtics or the Raptors, depending on whose perspective you're looking at it from, is a lot tougher competition than the Heat. Although the Heat played well too, you know? No, I, I think Milwaukee's going to finish off Orlando. I think LA, you know, We'll finish up. They really only we had it all right saying the first round was basically useless except for the Mavericks series, um, which is really interesting to me. Um, I think it's by far the most interesting series. If if Paul George keeps playing this terrible, <laughs> um, I, I, I legitimately think you know Dallas can win that series. So obviously, it's really I think the first round will come down to that. Yeah. Yeah, the I mean the West as usual has the more interesting um first round matchups just because it's a deeper it's a deeper conference obviously but um yeah, but the East we're already just about, you know, starting the second round um which makes sense. All right, I think we can leave this discussion here for now. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about baseball. We are amazingly about halfway through the 2020 baseball season, and we're just six days away from the MLB August 31st trade deadline. So we wanted to take a wider look at which teams and players have been excelling this season and who might be looking to make moves. Although, as Jeff Passan said on ESPN's Baseball Tonight, there may not be as much out there to grab before the trade deadline. Brick, I got to be honest. 
there's not a whole lot of enticing stuff out there right now. And that's partially because you have 16 teams that are going to make the playoffs this year and a lot of teams with playoff aspirations. It's also because the free agent class going into this offseason isn't that great. There are a few guys, though, who if teams either decide to sell or even more important, teams that are contending decide to spend money could really change the face of things. You see J.D. Martinez with the Red Sox. Problem is, he can opt out after this season, and he's owed $19.75 million a year for two years after that if he chooses not to opt out. Another name to keep an eye on, if the Texas Rangers continue struggling, Lance Lynn has been one of the best pitchers in baseball this year. He would be a highly sought-after player if John Daniels and the Rangers go down that route. So, Jeff, do you agree that it's sort of slim pickings out there right now? How much trade activity do you think we'll see as we approach the deadline? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... It's really a hard year to handicap because a, you know, the financial uncertainty of a lot of these clubs because of of this season, you know, is sort of an X factor that we can't really protect uh, predict and and meaning we don't know how willing a lot of these you know trade deadline is often about taking on a lot of money um, from another team and I, I think we don't really know how open some of these teams will be to doing that in this short season. But the main thing is that look at the standings. I mean, this is with this playoff structure and with this limited amount of games, I mean, there, there are only a handful of teams that are truly out of it. Um, so there aren't clear sellers like there have been in previous years um, where at this point, halfway through at least this point percentage wise in terms of uh, amount of games played, there's a lot of teams that realize that, this season's not going anywhere and they and they can move on from some of these, you know, big contracts that they might want to shed, um, which is really what fuels the trade deadline most years. But I mean, you look at the NL East where the Phillies, you know, just traded uh, with Boston for um, their closer, but the Phillies are in last place in that division. Um, really <laughs> every team is alive in, in that division. So I, I think it makes it, particularly hard to handicap that said it's pretty clear that the red Sox are going to be huge sellers i mean they've <laughs> already started selling i mean with their pitching that season's beyond hope i i think that's clear so whether that means jd martinez moves or whether that means xander bogart's moves um we'll see but they certainly have some pieces that'll be very appealing throughout the league um whether we get one of those uh big blockbusters i don't know so, Neil, you put together a list of teams that ought to be making trades using 538's Doyle metric, which amazingly is not an acronym. How is that possible that we haven't backronymed that? I know. We got to get on that. I mean, it is named after uh, Doyle Alexander, who has... Uh, Doyle Alexander should have played in the 1880s, not the 1980s. That is an 1880s baseball name, right? <laughs> I just I think that's right. Yeah, I stand by that. All right, so the, the Doyle number, it puts a number to how willing teams should be to trade future talent for talent in the current season. Could you talk a little bit about what you found? Yeah, so uh, each team's Doyle number basically represents the the multiple on uh, future wins that they should be willing to give up to add one current win this season. So if you have a Doyle of one, you should be indifferent whether to you know hang on to the win 
of talent, I should say, this season versus try to get one in the future. If you have a Doyle of zero, then there's basically no amount of uh, future talent that you should mortgage in order to gain talent this season. You should be a seller. But if it's high, if it's two, for instance, which is usually where the top teams are, then you should be willing to give up two future wins for each current win that you add. You should go all in, basically, and be a buyer. So with that in mind, uh, the the order of the teams by Doyle is not overly surprising. The Dodgers have the highest Doyle in baseball. It's 1.9. That means they should be willing to give up 1.9 wins of future talent for each win that they add this year uh, to try to win the World Series. Yankees are next, then the Astros, the Twins, the Rays, the A's, the Braves, the Indians. Uh, and then down at the bottom, you have the Pirates uh, with a Doyle of 0 0.01. They're clear sellers with that number. But <laughs> what strikes me is that the range of the numbers, and this is partly because I had to reprogram Doyle to uh, account for the 16-team playoff, uh, in addition to the uncertainty around having only played a half a season. Uh, a, a, you usually play a half a season or a little bit more than a half a season by the trade deadline, but that only means a month worth of games this year versus many months uh, in, in a usual year. So when I kind of reprogram that, the numbers that you get out of it now are a lot different than usual. So first of all, with that 1.9, the Dodgers, even though they have the highest Doyle in baseball, it's lower than usual. Last year, three teams were above two. Now this year, no team is above two. And down at the bottom, uh, no team is at 0.00 Doyle. The Pirates, again, are close, but they're not actually on that number. Uh, that doesn't mean they should go out and be buyers. But last year at the trade deadline, there were seven teams that had exactly a zero Doyle, and there were seven teams that were above one. This year, there's no teams that have a Doyle of zero, and there's, I think, 13 teams that have a Doyle of one or above. And if you're above one, you should think about being a buyer, uh, at least give it a thought. So I think that that, to me, tells you the story of this trade deadline, where you have a bunch of teams that are either clear buyers or should at least consider buying. And then even if your Doyle is below one, there are certain situations in which if the offer is right, you should think about being a buyer, even if under most circumstances, you should probably sell. An added complexity this year with the minor leagues being not, you know, with no minor league season happening. I mean, I, I don't really understand how to, I'm not sure where that fits in, like how we're going to trade prospects, what that means in a year like this. Not having that degree of scouting or knowing, you know, what a lot of these trade pieces actually are or having a recent look at them, it will have an impact. I mean, it, you're taking more of a gamble. I mean, I don't know how much weight we put in like traditional baseball scouting, you know, the guy there, you know, looking at the double A rosters and, 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 and evaluating uh, prospects. But I mean, so much I think is done now um, on you know, statistical analysis and things like that, but not having anything recent to look at is huge. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I think this is going to, I've been thinking this will be a very low activity trade deadline because of the number of teams that make the playoffs, but then the, the number of teams that could like, I mean, the, the, the added uncertainty, once you make the playoffs, having to play that extra series, just all the variance there, even you know, does buying a, a another player right now really will that it, it can't guarantee you a World Series win. OK, so 
The twins played their 30th game last night, which means I'm halfway done with the season. <laughs> How are you Car- feeling about the twins this year? They look mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to jinx. Yes, I don't want to jinx it. Pessimist. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're like 99% to make the playoffs, so I'm okay. Anyway, the twins have played 30 games. The Cardinals are up to 18 games now. So, you know, they're getting there. That's so, good. That's so, respectable. Right. So some teams are halfway through the season. So at or approaching the middle of the regular season, let's do some reflecting on the best performances we've seen. Who has stood out as a potential MVP, Rookie of the Year, and Cy Young winner? Let's start with the American League and let's start with MVP. Neil, who do you like? All right. So the American League uh, wins above replacement leader is uh, Shane Bieber of the Indians. But, (laughs) you know, when it's the slightest bit close, maybe I'm a traditionalist in this regard. I like reserving the Cy Young for pitchers and then giving um, the MVP to the best hitter if it's close. Again, that goes against these pure value rankings. But if you do that, then I'm going to throw a name at you for the MVP of the American League. That will be the weirdest name that you hear. A guy named Brandon Lau of the Tampa Bay Rays. <laughs> I'm picking him for MVP. The Rays have been great, uh, and he has been their best player by, I don't think, any small margin also uh, this season. Uh, he has 1.8 war. So go Brandon Lau, go Rays. <laughs> the, the measure of how well you know baseball is whether you know how to pronounce Brandon Lau's last name, I think. That's also true, I think. <laughs> this is I no. Actually, uh, for the record, I wasn't going to pick him. Because I wasn't sure whether it was low or low, and I, <laughs> and I didn't want to stop the flow of the podcast and have to get corrected. So I that's really, the only reason I'm not picking. That makes me really happy. All right, Jeff, who are you picking if not Brandon Lau? <laughs> I I found this one to be the hardest of all the categories, to be honest. Um, but I'm gonna take I'm gonna take another strange name. It's not a strange name. This guy's a star. I'm gonna take Tim Anderson. The spark plug of the upstart Chicago White Sox at the top of the lineup, obviously. Well, I don't know what his war is, Neil. I mean, I feel like I looked at the war and they were all like 0.6. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're so... a little low at this stage. <laughs> One good game could could vault you over someone. But he's a real like five tool, do everything, um, makes the engine go. Um, and I, I just like that lineup. I think it's obviously the one of the most exciting lineups in baseball right now well you're you're both wrong the correct answer is nelson cruz nelson your, cruz i knew you were your minnesota him. twins <laughs> <laughs> I, you know i'll also make another uh uh admission here which is i didn't pick nelson cruz because I, I left him for you Sarah. you knew i would <laughs> i appreciate that thank you um what about nl mvp I'm taking. Look, I got mocked for my taking our po- the Padres in that draft so early, and I took them if you remember because of Fernando Tatis Jr. So I have to stay with uh, Tatis, who I I still say is the most exciting player in baseball right now, and actually to me a clear MVP. Yeah, I think a lot of people will agree with you on that, Jeff. But I'm going to take uh, a guy na- by the name of Mookie Betts. <laughs> I knew you Dodgers. were going to do that too. This is like <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> Yeah, he's been the best player in baseball by uh, war this season. Uh, And the Dodgers, you know, if you look at their other guys, including reigning NL MVP Cody Bellinger, hasn't been that great this season. And yet the Dodgers are still winning. And that's uh, due more to Mookie Betts than to anyone else on that team. Well, I am also going to take Tatis 
because he is also the MVP of my fantasy baseball team. So let's switch to Cy Young. NL is way more interesting. Who do you guys have in the NL for Cy Young? Neil, go first. All right, I'm going to take uh, Max Fried of the Braves. Ooh, nice. uh, he, ha- in an otherwise decimated rotation, uh, he has been easily their best pitcher, uh, really their best player, because Acuna and Albies have missed a lot of time too. Uh, and yet the Braves are still in strong playoff position, likely to win the NL East. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm going to give Ma- Max Fried my Cy Young vote. Nice. How about you, Jeff? I'm going to go with a longtime. 538 favorite, Travis Sawcheck favorite, Mr. Trevor Bauer, <laughs> the, the enigma that is Trevor Bauer. I think uh, it looks pretty dominant. I mean, you got a whip at 0.73 currently, ERA below two. As much as I want Jacob deGrom to win yet another Cy Young, <laughs> and I think he's been nothing but excellent this year, um, despite some minor injury hiccups, uh, I'm going to go with Bauer. Nice. I'm going to take you, Darvish, just sitting there for me. He's having an amazing season. He's right up there in war. And he is also on my fantasy team. <laughs> Seriously, my team is really good. Um, AL Cy Young, I think, is, is much easier. Jeff, who do you have? Yeah, you got to go with the Beebs here. I mean, I, I, I actually think you could, like Neil alluded to, you can make a legitimate case that he could win MVP also. But he's been... Nothing short of dominant. This this is a no-brainer. Yep. Neil? I'd like to take uh, Lance Lynn or maybe Zach Greinke, but yeah, I think Bieber has been so good that y- you can't... I can't avoid doubling up on Jeff's pick here. And I'm going to make it a triple. I mean, it's... it's Yeah, he's definitely... Bieber is a... Uh, is definitely the the best pitcher right now in the AL. Not Justin Bieber. Um, yeah, has he surpassed Justin as the most impactful or famous Bieber? Maybe not famous, but certainly most productive Bieber <laughs> in, in 2020. <laughs> He's doing more good for the world. I don't know if that's actually even true. What's his pop hits above replacement? We'll chart that out later. Yeah. Uh, okay, rookie of the year. Let's start with the AL. Uh, Neil, who you got? I'm going to take Kyle Lewis of the Seattle Mariners. He has uh, he actually is in that MVP conversation, too, which is shocking um, if you extended it out to just look at, hit, you know, all hitters, put the beebs aside. He's he's not too far off of Brandon Lau. And shout out to Anthony Rendon also, by the way, in that um, MVP conversation, despite the Angels horrific yeah. year. But yeah, Kyle Lewis is... Uh, is the clear rookie of the year for me in the AL. Okay. I thought about taking Rendon, but it, the, the team is just so disappointing that it, it, it now I'm one of these old school baseball writers who can't give an award to a, uh, can't <laughs> give an MVP to a bad team all of a sudden. <laughs> I'm going to also take Kyle Lewis. I think it's hard to, to really make the case for anyone else considering what he's doing. Um, so yeah. As boring as that is, I'm joining Neil on that one. All right. Well, I'm going to make the case for someone else, and that is Luis Robert of the White Sox. Love that kid. He is so fun to watch. He flies around in the outfield and just mashes. I, he's I, I like him. He's he's right behind Lewis. I don't. Th- I think it's it's close. And over the full season, I think he will surpass Lewis. I think Lewis will come back down to earth a little bit. Um, the full season being one more month. One more month. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't take, uh, what's his name? Randy Dobnik. No. <laughs> First of all, I mean, I know he's he's eligible for- Is it Dobnik? He, it's Dobnik. He, it's Dobnik. If, if you pitch in the 
in a meaningful playoff game in the season before, then I'm not going to think about you as a rookie. I'm sorry. Yes, I know he's eligible, but he's not. He's not a rookie to me. All right. So this one is I think this is the hardest category, and that is NL Rookie of the Year. Who do you have, Jeff? You know, I realize I said I didn't want to take two White Sox, and here I am, and I'm going to take two Padres. <laughs> uh, so I'm a fraud. I'm going to take the most recent addition to my fantasy team, Jake, a.k.a. Rake Cronenworth. <laughs> yeah, Jeff, you, you stole my thunder there. I'm going to pick Jake Cronenworth, too. What is he batting? Very high. OPS, very yeah. high. Great numbers across the board on a, a lineup that's doing a lot. Yeah, and there really isn't that much of a um, a second option. Like, Luis Robert is a great second option in the AL, uh, but then you have to go pretty far down the list. I think the next highest ranking, at, at least by war, Tony Gonsolin is the um, next highest NL uh, ranking NL rookie, and I just wasn't going to take him. So I am going to not take Jake Cronenworth because I don't want to. And I'm taking my pick is is a little bit um, less based on. Uh, I mean, he's doing fine, but it's not like a he, uh, super statty uh, pick. It is Alex Alec Bohm of the Phillies. Because he's from Omaha, he he grew up and and played baseball, high school baseball in Omaha. So I have I feel like a I've covered him as a um, as a teenager. So I think it's uh, it, it's kind of cool to see him succeeding with with uh, a bad Philadelphia team. <laughs> so I'm he had a nice him. nice uh, first career home run dead center the other day. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, there's a cute video of um, him talking about a bunch of his teammates predicted that home run the day before, which. I kind of love. All right. Well, there you have it. Those are some, I mean, we had some good consensus there on a lot of picks. There are some that are, that are going to be some interesting races, but some that seem uh, kind of sewn up a month into the season, which is a month before the end of the season. The end of the season. <laughs> yes. All right. Let's leave that here. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Yeah, so if you followed the Northern Trust golf tournament from over the weekend, you would know that the scores were low. And I'm talking super low. All but three of the 70 players who made the cut finished under par. The winner, Dustin Johnson, shot 30 under par. He had 254 total strokes, which was actually, it broke the PGA Tour record for lowest 72-hole score on a par 71 course and just missed the all-time record on any course, which was set by Justin Thomas with a 253 at the 2017 Sony Open. Uh, Johnson shot 67 or lower in all of his rounds, uh, but his best score came on Friday. He was 9 under par in the front 9, 11 under through 11 holes, and parred the rest of the way to shoot a 60. And it wasn't even the best round of the day because PGA Tour rookie Scotty Scheffler went six under on both the front and back nines to finish a ridiculous 12 under par and on a par 71 course. That means he shot a 59. 59 is this magic number in golf. A player could, I guess, in theory, shoot a 54 if they birdied every single hole on a par 72. But 59 has seemed for years to be the kind of practical limit to how low a player could shoot on a professional course. 
Nobody had ever crossed the 60-shot barrier in a PGA Tour round until 1977 when a guy named Al Guyberger shot the first ever 59. And it was such a significant accomplishment that Guyberger was known forever after as Mr. 59. Uh, it would take 14 years after that before anyone did it again. Chip Beck shot a 59 in 1991. Then eight more years before David Duvall did it. Uh, around the same time, the great Annika Sorenstam became the first and to date only golfer to shoot a 59 or lower on the LPGA Tour. She did it in 2001. And then after Duvall, it was 11 more years on the PGA Tour before Paul Goidos did it at the 2010 John Deere Classic. So this is kind of a rare thing in history. And in fact, still only 12 rounds in history have ever gone lower than a 60. That includes Scheffler, and it's never happened in a major championship. I believe the all-time low there is a 62. But weirdly, the pace of 59s has picked up a lot since Gordos did it in 2010. In fact, Stuart Appleby did it 25 days after Gordos did it at the Greenbrier Classic. <laughs> so something that usually took a decade or more to happen again took just 25 days, less than a month. Uh, and so after happening once every 11 years from 1977 through 2009, since then, a round of 59 or lower has happened every 1.2 years on average. It happened twice in both 2010 and 2017. In other words, more 59s happened in 2017 alone than it happened in the entirety of PGA Tour history before 1991. Nine of the 12 59s, or 75% of them, have happened since 2010, and that number includes Jim Furyk's 58 that he shot at the 2016 Travelers, which set an all-time record for lowest round in PGA Tour history. He shot a 12 under par on a par 70. Naturally, that came just three years after he had already shot a 59 on a par 71 course. So my question for you, Jeff, as our resident golf expert is, what is the deal with this? What is happening that's causing all of these 59s? And is 58 or even a 57 the new 59? And finally, will anyone shoot the all birdies perfect round of 54? <laughs> You know, I, I think the answer is, is, is the thing we probably discuss most in golf, which is, you know, the distance. And I, I, I think the equipment is huge. I mean, obviously, look, I mean, to, to get that type of score, a lot of it has to do with the course. And when someone finishes minus 30, <laughs> minus 30, um, clearly the course isn't challenging the player that much. I mean, you have to also putt really well. I think he was like five strokes gained putting in the second round alone which is ridiculous so obviously like johnson was was putting very well you can't just do it you know on pure uh brawn altogether by the way bryson dechambeau on this missed the cut um so it, you do need you do need everything going but you know uh, it was all that talk about tiger proofing now it's like everyone proofing <laughs> and you, you see things done at, at the majors, at the British Open, at, at the U.S. Open in particular. I think you can see always see some really low scores um, in the right conditions at the Masters. But it's just hard to make these courses as difficult as possible without really growing out that rough and really making it unique. But if you start doing that on week-to-week -to -week tour events on some of these courses, then all of a sudden I think that makes – the majors less special but some of these courses and, and this is not even known i mean i think that the furic one at, at at um river highlands in connecticut i mean that that is always a course where it doesn't have a great field and, and it always has very low is a complete birdie fest it's probably just the evolution of the game i mean the question is do do we care like what what does it matter i mean people yeah. like seeing birdies and eagles so 
So, I mean, I think while I enjoy watching players really struggle, I think it's fun. I, I, I love <laughs> a good maybe tournament. maybe says more about you than... <laughs> no, but I love a good tournament where these guys are laboring to make par and, and we have winning scores above par. I mean, you just don't see that as much anymore. I mean, they're low every week. I mean, you just go back the last few weeks. You look at the Rocket Mortgage, the one in Detroit. I mean, it, we're minus 20 and stuff like that. I mean... It, it's a trend. So that's actually, do you think it's worse for the, all of the low scores or worse for the players to just complain about the terrible, like how hard it was? Cause they'll do that too. Anytime it's like, anytime they all shoot above par, they're all like, they complain about it. And I wonder if that has anything to do with like the, the courses not making it that much more challenging because I, they don't want to hear about it. I love when the players can compl- complain about how hard it is. It brings me joy. Um, <laughs> when you get those lightning fast greens, like you remember that image of um, Mickelson at Shinnecock putting and then like hitting the ball again before it had stopped rolling and, and getting because <laughs> he was so frustrated. I mean, anytime you can get that, it's fun. I think the weather at the British Open, it's like the great X factor. I mean, no one wants to see a British Open like the one at St. Andrews where it was like perfect conditions and the guys were destroying it. Having the wind and, and the weather kick up in the, that event can really make it difficult. So a lot of it is kind of condition-based, I think. I think that's where you will find difficult conditions. Or you get these courses, some of the courses in Florida with a lot of water and a lot of punitive spots to hit where you get in these ugly single holes you know these quadruple bogeys and things like that people hitting into the water a lot this course didn't have any of that it wasn't that punishing um even if you did you know miss hit a ball you weren't you're probably still going to make par so i I think that's part of the factor there but that scene said i i don't want like gimmicky tricked out courses either so i don't know what i want but i do like seeing people struggle that that's fun to watch I think what my takeaway from this is that I'm not sure I ever need to play golf with Jeff as he just like sits in the cart and laughs at me for no, not I, able I to make my I'm putt. I'm not that good. I mean, <laughs> your, your love of people struggling is a little upsetting. <laughs> no, love of professionals making millions and flying jets into the tournament struggling is fun. <laughs> All right. I think that will do it for the rabbit hole and for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.